0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. I'm Jason Gewurz, the editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and we have an old friend as our guest today, the former Senior Vice President of Events for the NFL and longtime Ask the Event Doctor columnist in Sports Travel Magazine, Frank Sapovitz. Frank has a new book, called What to Do When Things Go Wrong, which is a guide for sports event organizers and meeting planners of all kinds on how to prepare for and respond to those inevitable things, small and large, that seem to pop up when you least expect it at events. It's a wide-ranging conversation that will include his experience in New Orleans when the lights went out at the Superdome during the second half of the 2013 Super Bowl, which could be a case study in itself on how to respond to the unexpected. But before we get to the conversation, this podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 20 will be held at the George R. Brown Convention Center in Houston, Texas, October 19th through the 22nd, 2020. This year's conference will once again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's SportsLink and NGV Best Practices seminars, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything we have planned at Teams, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the podcast. Our guest today, Frank Sapovic, has a lengthy history in sports event management. Today, he is a president and chief experience officer at Fast Traffic Events and Entertainment, a consulting firm with clients that include the Indy 500 and Major League Soccer. But before that, he served 13 years as the Group Vice President of Events and Entertainment at the NHL from 1992 to 2005, and as Senior Vice President of Events for the National Football League from 2005 to 2014. In that last role, Frank was the point person responsible for organizing the Super Bowl, one of the largest and most complicated events in the industry. In that capacity, he was at the forefront of growing the league's events, which included not just the big game, but also events such as the NFL Draft and the the NFL Combine. Of course, even at the NFL, things don't always go as planned, and that has led him to his latest book, which serves as a primer of sorts for how to prepare for the unexpected and how to respond when inevitable things go wrong. In this conversation, we'll explore some of his advice on how to address those issues, some stories from his past stops in sports, and a bit about what happened that fateful day when the lights went out at the Superdome. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Frank Sapovitz, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, Frank, it's great to talk to you. Our readers and our listeners should be pretty familiar with you, of course, from your fine work for years and years as our Ask the Event Doctor columnist, among your many career highlights, was uh, was writing the column for us, which was great. Frank, a lot of people, of course, know you as well from your vast experience in the sports event industry, You know, nearly 10 years at the NFL, running all of their major events, uh, 13 years at the NHL before that. And you've got a new book that we're going to talk about called What to Do When Things Go Wrong. Frank, I've gotten to know you a little bit over the years. And, uh, you know, unless I've got things wrong or have read it incorrectly, I, I consider you kind of more of an optimist in general than I would a, a pessimist. But you've got this book here kind of outlining for event organizers at all types, the sorts of things that could go wrong with their event and how to plan for it. Let's start there and, and kind of why uh, why you decided to write this book on this topic.
1: Well, you know, Jason, you're absolutely right. I I am an optimist and and I'm neither a glass half full nor a glass half empty person when it comes to a glass half filled with water. Because at the end of the day, the glass is actually full all the time. It's just half full with water. The other half is with air. And, you know, consider the the things that you are optimistic about being the water and and the stuff that you can't control necessarily that could go wrong for you as the air. Slide. So you really have to consider both things. You know, all of us in the sports event world and, and, and in the sports management world are really great planners. We know how to get from plan uh, from point A to point B uh, or from point A to point Z If you're, if you've got a really complicated project, but that's not really where things start. You really have to imagine all the things that can get in your way between point A and Z. And, and I learned about that quite a lot over the course of my career with both the NFL and the NHL. And, and I felt it was really important to talk about that and to recognize that you know, when you've got a project in front of you that has thousands of details, a bunch of things are going to go wrong every single time. You just have to be prepared for them and you have to you have to minimize the number of things that are going to go wrong but when they do anyway cuz something will you have to be prepared to respond to those things and and that's one of the reasons why i wrote the book and why particularly sports event planners but but people from any kind of project management discipline are really enjoying you know the stories in it and the lessons in it and the and, and how prescriptive it is
0: yeah. And let, let's be clear from the outset, your experience obviously is, is with some of the largest events in sports when we're talking about things like the Super Bowl, of course. But this is something that factors down to all level of events as well when we're talking about preparation and consideration for things that, that might go the wrong way at an event, right?
1: Well, 100%. Uh, you know, what's really been interesting is although it's written in the language that we as sports event people really understand – the the fact is that that companies really all over the country are talking to their employees, their teams and their staffs about this very subject, risk management and crisis management. um and you know events at the end of the day are just big projects. We do them for a living, but but everybody undertakes a project at some point in their career or in their personal life and and so the lessons are really you know, quite transferable, regardless of whether you're in the sports world or you're not in the sports world.
0: Yeah, well, let's dive in a little bit here. I mean, your book has uh, the premise of five different principles. I want to talk about some of them, because I I think there's interesting stuff throughout. And, you know, at the beginning, when you approach Um, you know, risk management or taking a look at things that could go wrong. You start with the idea of imagining, kind of visualizing your event and picturing what could go wrong. But I guess, you know, one question I have for you, Frank, is what's too far to picture? I mean, you have an event like the Super Bowl there are thousands, if not millions of you know possible scenarios of things that could go wrong. And you could spend all of your time just trying to brainstorm what those could be. So I'm curious what your experience was like, particularly at that level, just trying to figure out where you draw the line of what's reasonable to plan for and, and what's not.
1: Well, when you draw the line, let's start with what has to be on the inside of the line first. And that number one is safety at all times, whether it's athlete safety or guest safety or staff safety, you know, anything that could go wrong that could affect the health and well-being of any of those audiences or any of those participants is critical. So, you know, when you start imagining things that can possibly hurt people, you do that first, second and third always after that you start to think about things that are impactful to your business so if it's something that could create a financial issue for you that that comes next uh, brand reputational problems um, that's a big part of it too because you know when something goes wrong they don't care about why it went wrong. They don't care about who made it go wrong. They're looking at the brand. They're looking at the organizer. They're looking at the governing body. They're looking at the venue. They're looking at, you know, anybody who's close to them as being the the source of where something went south that affected their level of enjoyment or their convenience or anything like that. So, you know, those types of risks are uh, important as well. From from an operational perspective, all of us are dealing with things that you know are a little bit less than the than all of that. There either you're thinking about buses being late or traffic being heavy or you know the the hot dogs uh, not being ready when they need to be ready. All of those things are important in their own little in their own little silo, if you will, and those kinds of preparations. Although you can imagine them, really need to be executed and thought about by your teammates who are who are looking after those things. But when is it too when when is all of that imagining too much? It's when the the issues are not as impactful. They may be a five percent chance, but you know you know what's interesting about a five percent chance of something going wrong. What's that? If you have a five percent chance of rain that day and you leave your umbrella home and it rains cuz it can 5% of the time. You're going to get 100% wet. <laughs> right? So That's true. So if when the issue happens, it happened 100%. <laughs> it didn't happen 5%. So just because the chances are low doesn't mean that it isn't an existential threat to you, if uh, and a really important threat to you if it does happen. So, you know, you think about the things that are predictable weather effects and things of that nature, if you're not planning for that, you're going to get caught, you know, because the outcome is predictable when you don't plan for the predictable.
0: Yeah, I found it so interesting. I mean, you talk about preparation, obviously, you know, quite a bit in the book, and you've talked about in in the columns that you wrote for us uh, over the years. The, uh, the level of detail that you would go into at the NFL, there's a, a section in the book you talk about you guys are brainstorming before one of the Super Bowls and you know what would happen if a jackknife uh, tractor trailer has a spill outside the stadium before the game and what would you do? and, and you know you realize that the, there wasn't any hazmat plan you know for the local highways next to the stadium, something that changed just after that discussion going through those those brainstorming exercises that, that that must have been quite a process at that event just going through, you know, some of these scenarios and and figuring out how you could change things even, you know, before anything could take place.
1: Well, and that's that's part of the preparation process, but it's also part of the response process to some degree. So the the five the five steps are imagining, which we talked about, and preparing, which is really, you know, the nuts and bolts planning that we all do so very well. There's executing, which again, most of your listeners will do exceedingly well. Um, and and when something goes wrong, there is the response, how you deal with those things, and then the last is evaluating how you did um, when when all of that is done. What 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 we've just discussed in terms of the 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 hazmat planning was was a consequence of a an exercise we did each year called tabletops. They were basically operational rehearsals. All of us will do a rehearsal of the pregame show or the halftime show or you know, anything that's presentation oriented. But we don't always rehearse operationally. And what we did with the tabletops is we hired a, a facilitator who came from outside our, you know, our core team, but who became familiar with our floor plans, our operations plans, and our logistics and all of that. And he would create disaster scenarios, if you will, not all of them were real disasters, but, you know, crises that we would then have to solve as a team in real time. So everyone who's a decision maker on game day would be in a room and we would tackle these problems. One of them happened to be this hazmat thing, and, and you know what we determined over the course of a number of years, because we did that exercise, you know, nine times in the nine years that that I managed the Super Bowl directly, was we determined that we actually had a great way of handling problems in general. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that we were that we were prepared for everything, every individual thing. We were prepared for anything which was very different. It was a much more generalized approach that, that came out of that tabletop exercise, who's in charge of what and what do they do? And when do they do it? And my, the reason I'm bringing that up, Jason, is because you know, when the lights went out in New Orleans, and I was, I was part of the you know, responding uh, group for that,
0: yeah, I didn't want um, to ask you about that.
1: We, we we didn't have a plan for a power failure during any of those tabletop exercises. But when that happened, we went back into the same mode as though it was another exercise just like we did the week before. When we did the tabletop exercise, we would do four or five scenarios a year, and they were all different, but they really sharpened our our, you know, collective sensibility in terms of how to approach the response to big problems and how you correct them. And if you can't correct them, how you manage them uh, or how you manage them because you couldn't correct them. So, um, you know, that goes back to the, the question you asked earlier, which is, you know, how much preparation is too much preparation. If you've got a really complicated program, really complicated event my I would be a hundred percent supportive of you doing this operational rehearsal where you practice your operational response as opposed to just rehearsing your in-venue experience mm-hmm. uh, your your presentation
0: experience. Let's go back for a moment to the Super Bowl. So, uh, 2013, New Orleans Superdome. You know, I'm sure many people remember that situation. All of a sudden, the lights go out. Some people may or may not be familiar with the fact that you, uh, on top of having to deal with that, were in the process of being filmed by a 60 Minutes crew that was doing a feature on everything that you do. So, yeah, just got the, my luck. Uh, Yeah, you got the. the, It's not enough pressure having the lights go out with the whole world watching the game, but you've got a camera crew documenting everything as it is happening. So, uh, uh, walk us through a little bit. uh, You know, you talk in the book about. Uh, how panic can be contagious, and you know the need for organizers to, as best they can, you know, remain calm in these situations when when things are happening. There's a situation where panic would have been warranted, I think, on any level, and uh, we have documentary proof uh, through the 60 Minutes crew that uh, things remained relatively calm in your war room there while everything was happening. So uh, maybe talk a little bit, Frank, about how you're able to maintain that uh, control and and what role all your preparations played and allowing you to even remain calm during that situation.
1: So I, I want to be really clear. I don't think panic is warranted in any situation. And, and in fact, you know, there's a big difference between anxiety and panic. And if you don't feel anxiety when you're faced with a situation like that or any other really threat to your you know, livelihood and your project, uh, honest to God, you're not human. You're, yeah. you're going to feel anxious, and and the fact is that your body is, you know, reacts to these things a, a lot quicker than your brain does. So you're you're going to feel that anxiety. You're going to feel that sinking feeling in, in the pit of your stomach. Adrenaline goes coursing through your veins, and you can't get it back in your kidneys. You just can't, or yeah. your adrenal glands, which are above your kidneys. You can't do anything about that. But, but what you, what you can do is if you remain outwardly, uh, outwardly calm, if you will, or, or professional and focused on the problem. Psychologists have actually determined that if you take all of that anxiety and focus it on solving the problem, you start to feel a whole lot less anxious and a whole lot more in control. You may not be in control of the situation at large, but you're in control of yourself and the people around you and how they're responding. And if you're the leader, if you're the coach or captain of this team, avoiding the outward signs of panic are really important because one of two things happens if you are if you fall into a, a situation where you're exhibiting signs of panic. One is people stop listening to you mm-hmm. because they figure you're out of control and you're not going to be rational. The second is they may start panicking too. And then you're then you're in real trouble. So how did we fall into that that mode of be, of calmly and professionally you know, knocking back the problem as it as it came up? It, it, again, everybody was, I'm sure, as anxious as I was, but we went back to that tabletop exercise, as I mentioned before, and we said, okay, we've drilled for things like this. We have simulated a situation where we've had a, a structural failure in the building. We, we have simulated a truck full of hazardous material spilling outside the building and you know, the cloud of, of ammonia gas heading to the building. Right. We've done things like that. This is another one. Okay. It's now dark in half the building. What's the first thing we have to do. And, and because we prepared for this over the course of years, our first reaction was, what do we tell people? We know that in a situation like that, power failure or not, we don't know what the source of the problem really is. We don't know what the cause of that problem is, but we have to tell people what to do. Do they stay there or do they leave? You can't not say anything because if you do, they start making it up on their own and worse with social media being you know, your first go-to source for information, yeah, you want them listening to you, not to what they're reading on Facebook or Twitter. So uh, it was really important. And the first thing we did, and, and thank God 60 Minutes was there, to be quite honest, they documented this. I would have never remembered <laughs> any of this. But the first thing we asked was, okay, do we have the PA system? Is it operational? Okay, what do we tell them? Do we tell them to stay do we tell them to leave within within you know if you have an unsafe condition let's say it was a god forbid a terrorist issue you, you don't want people to stay right but if it's if it's getting the plug back in the wall which was essentially what it was you want you don't want people to leave you, you know you can't get them back in the building if at all fast enough to get the game restarted within a reasonable amount of time, you're kind of done for the day. So you want to make sure you're making the right de- decision on what to tell people. And that was the most important thing we could do while security and law enforcement was determining the cause of the issue, uh, along with the, the, the building engineers, which right. they did. And we knew that within four or five minutes uh, that we'd be able to restore the power Um, But in the meantime, you know, getting a script down to the PA announcer, having him be able to uh, to make the announcement because public address systems in most stadiums and all of your listeners should make sure that this is the case in the stadium that they hold their events or whatever venue they do is that the public address systems typically have a battery backup for this reason. Mm -hmm. And you've got like 30 minutes worth of opportunity to talk to people before the batteries start to, to drain.
0: Yeah, What was your anxiety level once the lights came back on that it uh, that it might happen again before the game was over? Oh, my
1: God. I, can I tell you, I was more nervous for the rest of the game than I was before because, <laughs> I, you know, I had asked, uh, okay, tell me that this isn't going to happen again. And the answer I got um, uh, from the building, which was the right answer as it turned out, was I can't. I can't tell you that it won't happen again. So I sat at NFL control that night saying, please keep the ball on the ground, keep the ball, keep the clock moving. This is the longest half of football I've ever experienced <laughs> in my life. There was no reason that we didn't know what the root cause was. And and the fact is, it didn't it didn't matter at that time for us to fix blame on any individual organization, component of the electrical system, or person. What was important was get the lights back on. And and even more importantly, or as importantly, perhaps, and this was also captured um, on the 60 Minutes broadcast, we talk about it in the book, we didn't get started right away. Mm-hmm. What we did was recognize that there are other electrical systems that are required, or electronic systems that are required to have uh, a, an authentic football game, coach-to-quarterback systems, sideline communications,
0: yeah.
1: the score clock, the scoreboard, instant replay. So all of those were interrupted too. And we made the decision, once the lights were back on, test every single thing before we get started again. We were dead in the water for uh, 24 minutes. What's another 10 to make sure we get this right? So yeah,
0: and that's but, a tough but, call. That,
1: yeah. that, it was a really tough call because if you think about that game in particular, it was nothing but scoring.
0: Yeah,
1: and 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 the the blackout actually happened right after a kickoff return to open the second half. So let's say that that the officials went under the hood on the next score or on a perish the thought a controversial play, um, you know, and a flag gets thrown and the official goes under the hood and there's no instant replay. Well, then all the conspiracy theorists <laughs> of why the lights went out in the first place are, have an argument. Yeah, for right? sure. Because, because you can't authenticate what actually happened on the field. There's no, no video record uh, for it uh, available to the officials anyway. Television would have had it. So we wanted to make sure all those things were back up and running before we started again. And, and that's the difference between a reaction and a response when you respond you're being thoughtful or at least taking a step back and saying okay as tempting as this is and and with with 115 million people watching on television and the television broadcaster right rightfully encouraging us to get started as soon as the lights were back on what where, where do you draw the line when do you how do you take that step back and say all right well what else what else do we make, need to make sure happens here before we get started, the, the pressure on that moment was enormous.
0: Yeah, for sure. You've, you've talked about the the need to communicate internally for people who are actually at the event, but then to factor in the quite literally millions and millions of people watching at home also wondering some of the same things.
1: Yeah, and it turned out that one of the coach to quarterback systems didn't come up with the with the lights. So we had to get that repaired while we were literally going system by system through everything else.
0: Yeah, amazing. Frank in the in the time we have left, let's talk a little bit about some of your other uh, event experiences. I'm curious, you know, you spent so long with the NFL and you were involved in all their events including the NFL draft. What's your take on what's happened to that event in the last couple of years, you know, seeing it move around the country and and seeing some of the numbers of people that have been engaging with that event?
1: It's it's really remarkable. I think it's great. The when the when I first started at the NFL, the draft was held in a, in a room, you know, with a couple thousand people. And really, it was only a couple thousand people for the first, you know, half of the first round. And they called them draft nicks. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were people who were super avid NFL fans and followed the draft and college football prospects and all of that. And, and when it moved to Radio City Music Hall in, in 2006, I was really concerned that we weren't going to fill the place it was six thousand seats. Mm-hmm. It was probably four thousand or so by the time we finished with seat kills for television, uh, television anchor platforms, and all of that. And I said, "Gee, you know, I, I, it's one guy on at a podium uh, on a on a stage that's seventy feet high and on a city block wide, right? And all of these seats, and we better fill them. Well, we were turning people away at the door." And it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that, you know, the draft was going to grow and, and every year it continued to grow. We'd get more people on day two and more people on day three, you know, and, and we were reaching a point where, you know, there was no place to actually put fans and with radio city being in the middle of Manhattan, you know, you couldn't really do an outdoor festival of any kind. We had actually approached Rockefeller center at one point to, you know, allow us to, to put fans there. And they, they had no interest in that. That's, you know, not the business they were in. So the, the notion of getting the draft to be more accessible to more fans was the, I think the starting point where, where the NFL said, well, let's take a look at bringing it to more fans in other places. And, and my God, the hundreds of thousands of people that end up on the street during during the draft, it's, Awesome. I, I think they've done a magnificent job with that.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things I failed to mention about your background, you worked for Radio City for a number of years before you joined the the sports world. That is a that's an incredible venue. You know, my we took our niece who lives in Colorado where I live uh, back to New York this summer and we did that backstage tour and if uh, if you're ever looking for like a tourist thing in New York that's actually worth the the money, it was a fascinating look uh, behind the scenes at at a pretty incredible venue what was what was your time like there frank
1: oh i i loved every second of i felt like i grew up there i i was actually an usher there when i was 15 oh, really? and and grew through the organization and worked through high school and college there and when i got out of college i was offered a, a management position in the front of the house and and uh, in the operations group and i i grabbed it I actually started my special event career there. After the the operations group, I was I was absorbed into the marketing department, and then from the marketing department into this new business that they, that Radio City was starting, called the special events department. And their their special events group did events not in the building, but for other people in other venues. So they took all their production expertise. And and exported it. And that's how I ended up working on my first Super Bowl in 1988, believe it or not, Super Bowl 22. I was the associate producer of the halftime show for Radio City.
0: Oh, interesting. I don't think I realized that.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I, I was there a total of 16 years altogether, 10 of them in management.
0: Goodness. Well, let's take you uh, from the past to the, to the present here as we, uh, as we wrap up. Um, you are now president and chief experience officer, a title that I love, for fast traffic events and entertainment, and you still uh, have your hand in the sports world. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the projects that you're working on now.
1: Well, I, I've, been, I've been really blessed with some great clients. I, I've been working on the Indy 500 for the last uh, five years since we opened the doors. Uh, I produced the pre-race show for the Indy 500, which is the, the largest single-day spectator event in the world. Yeah. Um, 300 350,000 people on, on race day at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which I think you know well is a two-and-a-half-mile oval. Um, with you know people just everywhere. I mean, it's it's really tremendous. And the the pre race show is six hours long, um, of which of which about three and a half hours are on television. So that's been a great program. I'll be producing that again. Um, you know, this May. Yeah, that's a
0: lot of programming.
1: Uh, yeah, with with uh, Major League Soccer, I, I was brought on to produce the their first All Star Skills Challenge. in in 18 years. Uh, We did that down in Orlando last summer. It was a tremendous success. So they're going to do it again in uh, in Los Angeles just before the uh, All-Star game for Major League Soccer. Mm -hmm. I've been working at the South Street Seaport in New York too as kind of their resident producer. Some of it's just plain old entertainment, but I also do get to interact with ESPN who has their studios here. Uh, at Pier 17 in in Manhattan and uh, and we do a lot of great work together. Some of it's sports, some of it's sports entertainment. Um, but that's just a you know handful of, of what I've been doing lately.
0: You know Frank, there's so much more we could talk about, but um, you know we're running out of time, but let people know uh, the book that we've been talking about what to do when things go wrong, where can people find it, how can they access it?
1: Well, it it's uh, published by McGraw-hill. It came out in in May of 2019. If you are someone who likes to listen to books rather than read them, uh, the audiobook came out in, in November. So, you know, a lot of people have told me that they hear my voice when they read <laughs> the, the book because it does kind of get rid ri- yeah, of it. Yeah,
0: I, I would the agree race. with that.
1: The, uh, and it's, you know, sort of tongue in cheek in some cases, and I tried to make it light and fun. But the audiobook also came out. It's on audible on on amazon and on on other ebook platforms so or audiobook platforms as well as on Kindle. so it's 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 easy to find on Amazon, that's for sure. Um, and you can get it from you know just about any uh, any bookseller as well.
0: Well, excellent. well, Frank, it's been fantastic catching up with you. Uh, we'll need to do it a little more often as we move forward. but uh, you know, thanks for your time today, and uh, glad to hear things are. Going well, and um, you know, hopefully for our audience, if they're interested in getting some practical tips on how to prepare for their events, no matter what the size, uh, I think your book is a is a great way to go. So, Fra- Frank, thanks for taking the time today. Appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. Luckily, things continue to go wrong, so <laughs> <laughs> it makes it easy.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Past episodes are available at sportstravelmagazine.com, and you can also subscribe by searching for Sports Travel Podcast on your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Until next time, this is Jason Gewurtz, and thanks for listening.